to another edition of the Unicorns Podcast. This is a podcast series featuring business leaders, motivators, innovators, and general go-getters. On today's show, we're talking about the weather. In particular, we're going to focus on extreme weather. Eris is a public company in Australia which operates emergency alert and climate modelling systems. It's on the stock exchange with the code AER. The company's early warning network monitors severe weather and natural hazard events across Australia and alerts its customers to any impending threat to their business or property. It sources data from regional fire agencies and the Australian Bureau of Meteorology, among others, and has the most detailed climate modelling tech in the country. With extreme weather events increasingly looking like the new normal, the company is working with some of Australia's biggest companies and councils as they adapt and address one of the most critical challenges of our time. The founder of Eris and the CEO is Kerry Plowright. James Harris is the Chief Operating Officer. Gentlemen, welcome to the program. Thanks, Justin. Yeah, thanks, Justin. Kerry, can you tell us more about the inspiration behind Eris and the journey that led you to develop the Early Warning Network? Yeah, sure. Look, um, I originally started in life as an army officer um, before moving into uh, the business sector and I got into tech in the early 90s um, and actually developed one of the first out-of-the-box e-commerce applications in the world. But, uh, you know, when you do it down under instead of in Silicon Valley, um, the outcome isn't always the same. But it went well, And uh, but just got out with my pants on in the 2000 tech crash, so I survived that. Good to hear. And moved up here to uh, God's own country and uh, uh, Kingscliff and uh, that Tiranora at that time. And I was sitting there and we get, we're in a storm alley basically where we live. You are, yes. Yeah, and so I used to look at these storms that used to roll through all the time. And I thought, why the heck aren't we warning for these things on a spatial basis? And that was the, the critical key because I could see warnings go up from bomb, but just on, on the website or on radio, I'm going, but that doesn't mean anything to anybody because they don't know really whether they're on the impact area and do they get it in time. So I thought, I'm sure we can do this. So I called my guys back that have been um, uh, developing with me uh, in the past and said, look, can we put a system together where essentially I want to be able to look at a map, draw a shape on the map, and then have those people that are within that shape get alerted for a particular event. And we can then put over the top of that other uh, uh, data, you know, such as radar and that type of thing. And uh, we thought that was possible. But in those days, that this had to be hard-coded because there were no, they didn't know what the locational uh, uh, data was in SQLs or anything else like that. So we had to hard code it. It took us a couple of years to do it, put it together, and then we started providing the service for free. Now, when you're using spatial notifications, everybody thinks, okay, five people are in a uh, polygon. That's not that hard to do when you just send those five. Actually, what you're doing is you're figuring out who isn't in the polygon. Once you've done that, then you know who's left, and those people can then be notified. So the system's accurate down down to three metres. So we could draw a, a polygon around the house and just those people in the house will receive the notification. So that's the crux of the whole system. We call it geographic notification information system. So that went out there for, for two or three years, got noticed by a few councils. We picked up a few councils. Then we picked up some engineering companies 
and then some insurance companies, and it grew from there. On in 2015, we listed the business. So at, at that stage, and we can talk about it a little later, uh, you know, we made a couple of missteps, um, just about fell over, but picked ourselves up and brushed ourselves off. And uh, this is where we're at today. So we've, um, uh, you know, really built the company out in the last 18 months to take us forward. So Eris plays a vital role in providing emergency alerts and climate modelling data. Could you shine a light on some examples of how this tech has made a big impact on businesses and communities across the country? Sure. So the alerting it was a prime function and, and still is a primary function of the business, but it's evolved a lot in its accuracy and also in the intricacies of telling those people, advising those people that are in harm's way um, what the harm is specifically because everybody has a different vulnerability point because you're talking about keeping people safe. You're talking about um, looking after assets, protecting assets and protecting operations. So we can get into that shortly with respect to how different businesses use this information differently and how our systems work to help those businesses build it into their daily operations. So a good example, you would have seen it on um, TV, probably AAMI, um, use our alerts that pump out to their people on a locational basis on their, their apps. And that's through our API. So most businesses now pull our um, data through their API. Yeah. Because they all have in, in their own internal systems. They like to do it that way. So it's nearly all through API. Local governments um, use it. Uh, a lot of local councils uh, also the system is used by some pretty large water authorities, such as SEQ Water and New South Wales State Water. So they actually use it to advise people downstream um, of an event so they can get out of arm's way. You, you look at uh, telecommunications companies, and they can they use it two ways. One is to advise or, or to look at cables that might be exposed to fires. So we draw a very accurate footprint on where fires are traveling, and they can then anticipate outages or some other remediation action that they might be able to take. Um, and otherwise, they're staff. So they have a zoning um, capability where what we do is they pull it through the API, it goes into their system, and then on their mapping, uh, they have zones which will pop up red or, or, or um, orange or black, and that'll be no-go. Get people out there where you can still work there, but be careful, that type of thing. So that's keeping safe, yeah. I have a great app on my phone called Rain Parrot, which um, tells me exactly when it's about to rain. So, you know, it, it sends a little squawk out and says moderate rain in 15 minutes, heavy rain in 21 minutes. It's fantastic. Cost me like two bucks a year. It's good when I'm playing golf. May, maybe um, if we can turn to the increasing frequency of extreme weather events, how has Eris adapted and evolved its systems, its technology to stay ahead of the curve. Yeah, so this um, this is where our GNIS, GNIS comes into play, our Geographic Notification Information System. So this has been developed over the last uh, 15 years. It's always under continuous uh, development. Uh, we've shoved it up onto Azure now. Um, and that in itself has enabled us to do a lot of other things spatially. So we've introduced hail tracking on that system now. So through Geopole Radar, we're able to look into uh, cloud formations and identify the size of hail and where it's going to land. The size of hail? Yeah, size of hail. How, bi how big does it get? 
Um, well, <laughs> baseball size. So bowling balls. Yeah, that's right. And, and yeah, it's a biggie now for for solar farms. Uh, obviously, for insurance companies, it's a big deal for them. Um, so another one is called radar RDR, radar derived rainfall. And this has come about because we've identified that a lot of the areas aren't covered by remote sensors, like rain gauges, flood gauges, that type of thing. And we use it for in a couple of ways. One is that we can provide alerting, uh, for instance, through the heavy haul, rail, that type of thing, to avoid track gouging and stuff like that, where other telemetry isn't available. So that's really quite unique and, again, feeds through our primary system. It also helps us validate other data. And so we were talking about councils and that type of thing. So we, we look at remote sensors. But 20% of the time they're mapped into our system, so all of these remote sensors are mapped into our GNIS. But 20% of the time they can go off incorrectly. So it's really important that we're able to validate other telemetry surrounding that to make sure we catch them. So an example down in Sydney would be Parramatta City Council. Um, we look at their telemetry down there. Uh, if their uh, system goes off, um, that empties out the um, Parramatta City Council CBD, their flood alerting. Now, several times we've caught that where it's gone off incorrectly and, for, and they've avoided emptying out their CBD. On the other hand, there have been a couple of occasions where it hasn't gone off, but we've identified that something is going on, rung them up and said, hey, should we be putting out an alert? So, Yeah, something's happening here. Yeah, and that, look, that brings into another part, which is combining our technology with people. So we have people sitting behind this the whole time, 24 by 7, and that's really unique. And we're easily the most experienced alert operator in Australia. Hands down. I was going to ask that. So your early warning network relies on data from multiple sources. So can you talk through the partnerships, collaborations? You've just mentioned people there that are crucial to bringing all of this together in an accurate and effective way. Yeah, sure. James, I think this would be a good one for you to to address. Yeah, no, thanks. And, and look, it's, it's really interesting. We've, um, we have a, a number of various sources and data that we utilize and, and um as Kerry just mentioned before, we have that 24-7 team, and I think one of the key things that they do is, is, is verify that data, filter it out, and ensure that our customers and the communities that the data is going out to is 100% correct. That's critical. We don't have any false alarms. We don't have any boy who cried wolf scenarios happening at all. Um, at the same time, we need to make sure that that um, is being sent really quickly as well. And so what happens here is that we have – um, various data sources coming in. We've talked about the Bureau, about rural fire services. Uh, we have a number of customers that have uh, rainfall data, uh, forecast flood data, and, and our team are monitoring these the whole time. So um, importantly, in the background, we have a, a, a great IT team as well who are monitoring, looking after, setting up all these feeds and making sure that they don't drop at any point in time because that's critical as well. We can't have any issues there. So um, the way we've set that up, um, we, we we actually find that it works a hundred of the time and we haven't had an issue yet. Um, and as Kerry mentioned, the fact that we're able to stop any false alarms going out, uh, I think we're looking at some stats the other day that I think already about 50% of the alerts that we receive, we actually filter out uh, and, and don't even send. And that just allows our customers and the communities that we deal with um, the reassurance to know that when they get an alert from EWN, they have to act. Yeah, and, and this this um, follows on to the next question I'd like to ask. Obviously, you know, the weather is it's a tricky beast 
to try to predict. There are a lot of challenges in trying to provide uh, these early warning services. So what have some of the challenges been and how have you overcome them? Look, it's it's interesting. We've we've had um, we obviously receive uh, as we talked about data from from various sources, and and one of the things that that often comes about is that when we do receive a uh, an alert for a weather event, um, we have noticed at times that uh, we we have a few customers where their requirements are. We know that this uh, warning may be for a large area, but we actually need to know from a hyper local point of view, will this actually affect us? Um, and so for us, one of the challenges there um, from a weather point of view was was actually working out how can we provide um, information to these people that is relevant so they're not wasting hundreds of thousands of dollars and putting things away or moving stuff when they didn't need to. So that's where we came in and, and, and worked out solution, as Kerry mentioned, of um, focusing on areas where there is going to be an effect for an event. And that can include things like hail, um, where we do, rather than sending a severe thunderstorm warning for some corinth, which about hundreds of square kilometres, we'll actually focus on the cells specifically and reduce that down to a very minor level. So maybe only 1%, 2% of that area. Uh, and so customers then understand where the issue may be relating to hail and, and where is it going to hit over the coming hour and so on. So from a weather point of view, that's how we do it. Climatics, uh, which is our, uh, our climate risk platform, um, I, one of the big things there was we, we understood, and Kerry will talk about this all later, we understood there was a, there was a lack of um, geospatialized event data in Australia's history of, of severe weather events and natural hazards such as bushfires, floods, hail, you name it. So we went about putting together the first ever spatialized map of events in Australia's history. Um, and it, it's taken obviously years and years and years and years. And there's a lot of challenges in trying to get data, trying to verify and validate that data or ensure it's 100% correct because the climatic system relies on having the right information and uh, providing that uh, through the reports that we, we offer it. So there were some really interesting challenges there of getting that put together. But We've done it, and and Climatics now produces some uh, obviously incredible detail, um, physical uh, risk reporting. Just following on from that, so what can we maybe go a little bit deeper into the role that technology, particularly this climate modelling technology, plays in helping some of the big companies, the big corporates, the councils adapt to the challenges posed by extreme weather and even climate change? Yep. So... As James mentioned, um, specifically physical risk, physical climate risk. So that that's our uh, expertise, and uh, what we aim to do that with that is deliver what I call decision useful data. This is benchmark data; it's unique. No one else has it in Australia. And this is made possible by two parts. One is what James just referred to with respect to mapping that historical event data going back to the 1800s plus our operational data that we've been compiling ever since we've started this business, which is all on that major platform. So when you talk about the modeling side, this is the most interesting part. And I like to use an analogy here. Um, a lot of other practitioners in this area um, use climate models, which are really designed for scientists to be able to look at what might be happening by 2050 um, or you know, the following century. Not so much actual physical risk within the next 10 years. I mean, let's face it, 
businesses looking to make a financial decision, looking to build a solar farm somewhere, uh, insurance companies renewing policies, they're wanting to know what really might happen within five to 10. That's what they're going to be building decisions around. So this analogy I use, imagine you're going to fly up here, Justin, you know, you're jumping on your commercial flight there, and you get a choice of two pilots. The first pilot um, has never actually flown a real aircraft, but he spent a bit of time in a simulator, uh, but unfortunately he's crashed every time he's flown that simulator. This is not a good example, Gary. (laughs) (laughs) Then then you get the other guy, and he's got about 5,000 hours commercial, right, in the left-hand seat. So you go, and he's never crashed either, boss. Yeah, I, I'm I'm on that plane. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's where we are. We're the guys with the 5,000 hours worth of real flying. And that's because we're working with real data. So that's if you're a business going in to make decisions, you want to make sure you've got something defensible in 10 years' time to show that you've made some very important decisions based on real numbers. So that falls into to three parts business-wise. Regulatory, so... Coming up in the next three years, you're going to have some something like 23,000 businesses needing to report on their physical risk. And basically, they don't have a freaking clue how to do this. So we've got two jobs here. One is communication, but the other is we already have a solution that's very easy to use that they can apply straight away in the reporting of their risk. The other is quantification, and that is used by uh, insurance companies. And a great example of this with insurance companies that we're working with is when they come up with their um, policy renewal or portfolio renewal, um, they have to run some metrics over what's the risk of that for the next year. And the beautiful thing with the way we monetize that is that's done on a per ping um, basis through an API, and that will ping on an asset, and it will ping per peril. I'm saying we've got something like 12 perils on there. So this is a really good business model because it's obviously turns over the whole time with when their policies come through. And the third is, I mentioned um, uh, companies like solar farms and uh, businesses that are vulnerable to hail and events like that, which can use that sort of spatial data to go, okay, well, you don't want to park that asset there. It's going to be at high risk. Where is your technology being used? Is it only in Australia or is it internationally available? Primarily here in Australia, but there's no reason it couldn't be used internationally. I'm thinking of Tornado Alley in the United States. Yeah. And the storm, yeah. the storm chasers. Yeah, yep. And we get enough of those on board. Half our team is storm chasers. Sort of what moves the business along originally. Uh, there's no reason our, our tech couldn't be used uh, in the US or the EU, and, and we do have a long view to doing that. They're highly competitive environments, and, and you've really got to have a good strategy to get in there. And given the size of the opportunity that we already have in Australia, um, what we need to do first is start to consume some of that. And, and that is enough to 10, 20-fold our revenues here in Australia easily. I bet. So Eris is a public company. You're on the ASX. How has being a public company affected your approach to innovation and growth? Like most capital. Capital is the first one. Um, it, it allowed us to put uh, the resourcing together and, and the strategy together. Now, I mentioned before how when we first listed, we tripped up, which we did. And we picked ourselves up. So being listed gives you the grace of, of being able to make a couple of mistakes along the way. And over the last 18 months, we really put together a spectacular team. 
And we filled out those niche roles that now with the team that we have, we can tenfold, twentyfold our income without spending another cent. We've we've got the capital to weather any when I think wanted to use that word, weather any major events. Pardon the pun. To weather any extreme events uh, internationally. And I mean it's a pretty volatile world at the moment. And there's gonna be some obviously impacts on economies for what's occurring. And we're in a good place to be able to weather through that, especially with our blue chip customers. And we have the zero attrition customer wise and also staff wise, by the way. Good. Yeah. And and the governance side, it really has filled in that government governance, which makes running the business really easy. I say that for me because we've got James sitting there who does a lot of the hard yards. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Let's look ahead, gentlemen. What what are the future plans and goals for Eris, both in terms of expanding the services and addressing the ongoing challenges posed by climate-related events, if I can call it that? I think the first one, given our new products and given the opportunities that are sitting ahead of us with climatics, is messaging. Messaging and education. So we've got a big role or a big job to do with telling that prospective market as they come into play and having to um, do their reporting and disclosures and what have you, what exactly our data means and why our data is better than other people's data. So they wouldn't have a clue, you know, good data, bad data, if it bit them on the rear end. So we have to get out there, and this is one of the things that we're doing now, to make sure that they understand why they need to be addressing it with um, defensible um, decision-making data like ours. And shareholders and investors, right? You know, we haven't done a great job in the past of communicating with our shareholders and investors about what we're doing. But now that we've filled those roles within the business and we've got our internal comms in a good place, we can take them along with our, on the journey now with us and what we're doing. And in terms of, you mentioned, you, you touched on it briefly, potential expansion into other geographical areas. Is that something that potentially investors could? look to as a milestone down the track? Um, I'd say New Zealand at the moment. We've got, but if we're talking about milestones and, and, and those big revenue gains that everybody looks for when, it, when a business jumps, that would be sitting on, on climatics. So what we've got is we've got really solid revenue growth every year. 720K of new ARR last year. Um, and we look to do, hoping to do better uh, this year, but that's just on our standard business products. That's not putting anything on Climatics. Climatics, when we stick our first big insurer on there, is going to be a game changer. That's that's we're getting into multi- multiplication territory there. So this is where we've got a massive opportunity. And once we've done that, that's when I think we can teach do two things really. One is look offshore, but also look at an M and A. M and A is also a good way of leading into another market. And we are, in fact, looking at one now. Um, it's a bit of a, a slow burn, but we're looking at one opportunity um, that would lead us into different markets in our space. You're teasing us, Kerry. <laughs> and, and Justin, if I can just follow up with that as well, one of the other things we're also looking at as well is integrating with, with partners and, and looking at partnership opportunities. Um, and we're well and truly um, deep um, within that cycle at the moment of, of reviewing a number of partnerships, uh, looking at um, other technology, 
how can we integrate that into our business and, and what can this uh, provide for the company moving forward uh, in terms of obviously uh, increased revenue and, and, and other um, sources as well. So um, that certainly for us is is another element which we're, um, we're focusing heavily on at the moment too. I suppose everyone always asks you what the weather's going to be like. Um, I've seen that in, certainly in Australia, an El Nino system has officially been declared. Everyone's forecasting it's going to be a very hot summer. What does your modelling show that the next three to four, five, six months is going to be like, particularly in Australia? Hot and dry is probably the uh, the first two words I can think of. Um, certainly, um, just spot on. We, we have a, an El Nino. It's quite a strong one at the moment um, that we've, we've entered into. Uh, another um, climate driver uh, that causes um, quite a significant effect on Australian weather is the Indian Ocean Dipole, uh, and that at the moment is in a very strong positive phase, uh, which basically means there's virtually no moisture over the Indian Ocean northwest of w, uh, WA, sorry, Australia. And as a result, as, as troughs and fronts move through into the mid-latitude areas, there's just no moisture for them to tap into. So, um, yeah, the the combination of that and, and El Nino, obviously, um, is a bit of a double whammy for us, and, and we're literally in the middle of it right now and seeing some, some record uh, temperatures um, already uh, recently. Um, in fact, I think um, uh, August uh, was, yeah, August was the second warmest on record. And uh, we also had the warmest winter on record nationally as well. So it gives you a bit of an idea um, of, of the effect that that's having. Um, we're now seeing, unfortunately, a large number of bushfires uh, popping up, uh, particularly over Eastern Australia, but there have been other areas as well, such as uh, Northern Territory have had significant amounts of areas um, burnt over the last few months during their fire season. Um, and, and we're expecting, unfortunately, for bushfires to, to continue uh, for the foreseeable future. Um, we, yeah, we're, we're sort of expecting, hopefully, that there'll be a bit of a breakdown um, in uh, the, at least um, the Indian Ocean um, dipole towards uh, probably mid-summer, as well as uh, hopefully a weakening of El Nino, and that may allow that February-March period for uh, a return of more what we're used to, that subtropical, tropical conditions where we, we do see some rain events actually occurring. Gentlemen, we're out of time. Thank you so much for joining us on the Unicorns podcast today. Kerry Plowright and James Harris from Eris. Remember the name, folks? Eris. It's on the stock exchange with the code AER. Kerry and James, thanks for coming onto the show and all the very best in the years ahead. Thank you, Justin. Thanks, Justin. 